0: Our message is about today, and I want us to talk about the choice of grace. So I want to ask—we don't do this a lot. We uh, don't—we don't do a whole lot of repeat after me's. But um, I want to um, ask you today to to repeat the words whenever um, if you hear me say, if you have to choose, then you say in response these three simple words. Always choose grace. So let's try that out real quick. If you have to choose... Always choose grace. All right, one more time. If you have to choose... Always choose grace. All right. Let's get to our Scripture reading today. It's in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. And we're going to be reading... um, Verse 1 through verse 16. If you would, uh, if you're physically able, would you stand in honor and reverence for the reading of God's word? "...for the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. He agreed," notice that, notice that word, agreed. "...he agreed to pay them a denarius for the day and sent them into his vineyard. About nine in the morning he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing." He told them, You also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. So they went. Then he went out again about noon and about three in the morning and did the same thing. And about five in the afternoon, he went out and found still others standing around. He asked them, Why have you been standing here all day long doing nothing? Because no one has hired us, they answered. He said to them, you also go and work in my vineyard. When evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, call the workers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. The workers who were hired, about five in the afternoon, came and each received a denarius. So when those who were hired first, they, then so when those came who were hired first, they expected to receive more. But each one of them also received a denarius. And when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. These who were hired last worked only an hour. They said, "And you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and of the heat of the day." But he answered one of them, am I, I am not being unfair to you, friend. Didn't you agree to work for a denarius? Take your pay and go. I want to give the one who was hired last the same as I gave to you. Don't I have the right to do what I want to do with my own money? Or are you envious because I am generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would allow us to understand that we should always choose grace. Help us to understand that your grace is not just a simple decision that we make at one point in our life, but it is a It is a continuous choice that we approach you with the mindset of those who are in need of your grace and we relate to you as being in need of your grace. And remember that we are never in a position of power or strength to try and manipulate you and to make you do anything But we are always unworthy servants. We are always sinners in need of a Savior. We are always blessed by whatever you do for us. Father, help us to have that right mindset, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Whenever you have to choose... All right, you guys are sharp for a Sunday morning. I noticed some of the younger ones' voices were a little bit louder and more confident, but still, pretty good, pretty good. I've mentioned a bit over the years in my preaching and teaching about context, about how it is important to, to understand a particular passage of scripture that you understand what's written before and after it it's especially important when you're reading the gospels we have four distinct records of the life of christ because god intended for us to understand some things from different viewpoints he didn't have to inspire four authors he could have given us one inspired record, he could have given us ten inspired records, but he chose to give us four. And obviously, he could have given us four inspired records that were identical almost, but he didn't. He chose to inspire four different men and that would give us different viewpoints. We make some assumptions as Christians a lot of times about about these uh, authors and the way up, about the way they wrote their works. And sometimes the one of the assumptions, one of the many assumptions we often make, is that they are taking telling a story at a very basic level, like a elementary school student might tell a story. Here's the beginning, here's the end, and I will tell everything in exact chronological order from the beginning to the end. But we all know, as we go to movies and read books, that's not the way that most authors tell their stories. We are very used to, in our stories, flashbacks. We're very used to we, authors who go along in the story and then boom. 20 years ago, or 10 minutes into the future, or authors who put things together and they say, oh, while I'm on this subject, let's talk about something else that relates to this subject. And the gospel authors were no different. The way they put together their accounts, they often placed Jesus' teachings, grouped them together to make a point Or they would group the parables together to make a point. And not just the individual parable would have a meaning, but the parables side by side or the teaching side by side, you can look at those and see the point that they are making. And I definitely believe that Matthew was doing this here in chapters 19 and 20. In chapter 19, we have one of the most famous uh, Bible stories uh, ever about Jesus. It's the story of what we commonly call the rich young ruler. There's a guy who comes in, I don't know if there's a horse mentioned, but I always, in my mind, I envision him. I think I must have seen it on flannel graph or in some poster, you know, learning this in Sunday school as a child. I come envision him come riding in on his horse, kind of high and robes and all clean and special and rich. And, and, and you know, he's just heroic looking. Good teacher, he says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, there's an old saying, if you ask the wrong question, you get the wrong answer. His question is, what must I do? It is a works-based religion. It is an effort of the flesh. It is a prideful, however well that pride is hidden, the idea is that I can do something to do Everything, to, to I can be good enough to inherit God's kingdom and his goodness. What must I do? And so Jesus questions him. First, he says, well, why do you call me good? There's only one good, and that's God. He's making the point, first of all, <laughs> we're not good, any of us only those who are divine, only those who are perfect, like the sinless Son of God. But many people, including this rich young ruler, believe in salvation by morality. And I want you to understand today that morality has sent far more people to hell than anything else. If you were to ask people, what sends people to hell, folks would say, murder, rape this sin, that sin, this hot-button issue, that thing that we all think is terrible. But over and over the Bible tells us that what it is pride and arrogance and the sin of thinking that we don't need God, the sin of thinking that we're above Him and we don't need His mercy, grace or forgiveness, that we can do it all on our own. We look at moral, quote, "moral people," and we say, "Oh, those are good folks." Certainly, they're in the kingdom of God. But Jesus, when he told another parable, he said it was the publican, that is, the tax collector, the one that everybody would have thought was evil. It was him rather than the moral Pharisee when the two were compared. It was the evil publican who sat there and beat his chest and hung his head in shame and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner said he is the one that was justified in God's eyes. Why? Because he chose mercy. He chose grace. He chose to say, I understand that I can't be good enough for God. But the rich young ruler didn't understand this. And so Jesus, still prodding him after he's he's already said, why do you call me good? He goes on to say, oh, have you kept the... The commandments, this one and that one and the other one and, and and he references most of the commandments that refer to other people. you know the commandments start off the first few refer to our responsibilities toward god and and then the last ones are responsibilities towards others and, and he fires off and asks him about most of these other ones at the end and uh, he's, as he 's naming them off, you can just you can just see that that rich young ruler kind of ticking it off on his finger, that one, that one, that one. And he says, yes, all these I've done from my youth. In other words, oh, I've got it down. Yes, teacher. Yes, Rabbi Jesus. Oh, I've aced that. I've mastered that already. I'm a good moral guy. I've done all the good, right things that I need to do. And Jesus said, this one thing... You lack. Go and sell all your possessions, and then you will have great rewards. And follow me, and you'll have great rewards in heaven. And said the rich young ruler, went away sorrowful. You know the the commandment that he didn't ask him if he'd kept. The one about do not covet. The one that addressed not just what you did toward your neighbor, but your heart toward your neighbor and your neighbor's stuff. This man had all the outward things. He could check it off as far as anybody, but God could tell from the human perspective he was the ultimate good guy. But Jesus had already told him up front there are no good guys from God's perspective. There is nobody good enough. When you're talking about good, not as in good, better, best, but good as in pure and holy and righteous. There are no good guys in that sense, except for God alone. But he wanted to be a good guy. And Jesus said, here's the real test of whether you're a good guy. Not just these outward actions. Because you, yeah, you're an impressive guy. You're a a striking guy. You're a guy that everybody likes to see what you've done. And yes, you've donated to charity. And yes, you've said all the right things. And yes, you've been politically correct. And, And yes, you've made everybody happy. But where's your heart really at? And when it came to where his heart really was at, his heart happened to be more into possessions than it was into God. And folks, it didn't have to just be about money. It could have been about anything else. It it could have been about fame. It could have been about a relationship with someone other than God. It just happened to be, for him, it was money. But Jesus told that parable to help them understand this isn't the way to go. He walks away and the disciples are astonished and, and they don't get it. And they're like, whoa, we, we're blown away at what happened here because they thought this is, this is a pretty good dude. He's, and Jesus said it's harder for a rich man to get into heaven than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. In other words, it's impossible. <laughs> there are no camels <laughs> that go through eyes of needles. It does not happen. It's really funny, there's a, there's a long and twisted history of biblical interpretation where people try to make that work. And someone says, oh, I think there was a gate called the eye of the needle. And, and we, camels would go through that special gate or, you know, they try to make up. But nothing's ever been proven. People try to, they want to make that work. They want to make, find a way that somehow the camel can go through the eye of a needle. It can't. Jesus is saying, it's impossible and the disciples say, who, who, who in the world can get saved then? Now, why do they ask it that way? Who in the world can get saved? Because their question betrays an understanding that if anyone can get saved, it's going to be rich people that get saved. I don't think most of us would necessarily have that mindset or understanding today. But that was a common mindset or understanding back then. Where did they get that mindset from? Let's think about this. Remember in the Old Testament, there were hundreds of laws. But on top of the hundreds of laws that were part of the covenant, the first covenant, the Old Testament covenant with God's people, there had been laws placed upon those laws by the rabbis, by the teachers. Over time, they had built up traditions. And so it was no... It was no longer just honor the Sabbath. No, they had built up laws like here's how you honor the Sabbath. It's not between you and God to determine how you honor the Sabbath. We're going to put some extra legalism, some extra rules, and we're going to tell you exactly how you should honor the Sabbath. And they put rule upon rule upon rule upon rule upon rule. So when the disciples said, wait a minute, wait a minute, if rich people can't get saved, who in the world's going to get saved? They had that idea for two reasons. Number one, even in the Old Testament, there was a bit of the health and wealth prosperity type gospel understanding of people, like, oh, if they're blessed financially, man, God must really be on their side. But secondly, in their time, There were so many rules, the Old Testament rules, that had been placed then on top of those, all the extra rules that the Jewish religious leaders had put on top of them, that only a rich person could possibly come close to keeping them all. But if you were really rich and you had servants to do all your normal stuff, and they could let out the dog, and they could do the work, and they could clean the kitchen, then maybe if you were rich and had people doing every other thing, then maybe, maybe you would have time to follow every itsy-bitsy, teeny-weeny, tiny little rule, and only the rich people could go around bragging, yes, I have kept all the commandments. Because everyday po' folk, common, middle class, lower class, whatever you want to call it, normal working people couldn't do it. Normal folks every day got beat down by the religious people because they were told, you got to do this, you got to do this, you got to do this. And day after day, I can't do it. God, you're going to have to forgive me. I can't do it. I'm sorry. I've tried. I can't. And so the normal folks lived under the weight of guilt and, and of and of this heavy, heavy burden. But they just had to say, God, I, I'm just gonna have to, you're just gonna have to give me grace. Because I can't do it. I'm trying. But, I, but the rich folks, they didn't have to come to God and say, God, you're gonna have to give me grace. They had all the little people, all the poor people doing all their other stuff for them. And they could say, God, I met this rule and this requirement and this regulation. I have done every little thing. I've checked off my list. And God, I am good. And world, I want you to know I've given to the poor. And I've I've donated my time. And I've done all the good things. I'm holy and righteous. And that was the idea of the upright, moral person rich wealthy moral person in jesus day and so when jesus says to the disciples a a camel can get through the eye of a needle before a rich person can get saved they're like what do you mean and then jesus says yeah with god anything is possible it's impossible but with god if anything is possible it was not so much that Jesus was saying rich people in general are unholy or can't get saved. But Jesus was saying that those people in that day lived in such a mindset that those who were wealthy thought they didn't need grace. They were so surrounded By in such a world that told them that they were the good ones because they were wealthy and they were the ones that could do it without God because they were wealthy. And if you believe that, if you buy into that, then you reject grace. And Jesus said, if you do, you won't be saved. And Peter then asked a question, which is really funny. We know Peter, he sticks his foot in his mouth. And he asks, says things, and he asks things, that he's getting rebuked for all the time. And then he, he says, well, what about us, Lord? <laughs> and I, we've, we've given up everything. We've left our families, our, our careers, all the stuff that we used to do. We got left all that behind, and we started following you full time. I mean, what about us? You know, kind of tagging on to the, Jesus telling the young man to leave all his stuff and follow, and Peter's like, hey, we did, Jesus. <laughs> you know, and you, you expect this to be another classic Jesus smacks down Peter moment, right? That's what you expect, because Jesus just has to do that a lot. He has to put Peter in his place. But that's not what he does here. It's so surprising. He actually instead... And I want you to go back and read this for yourselves, okay? Always read this for yourself. Always check what I say with God for it, OK? But he actually tells them, this is my paraphrase. He says, "Look, everything that you've given up for me, you're going to get back a hundred times and more. Whatever you've given up for the gospel's sake, you don't ever have to worry that it's going to be any sacrifice you made will be repaid abundantly over and over and over and he says in this life and in the life to come and that's really important in this life and in the life to come so if we understand that that prevents us from falling into health and wealth and prosperity gospel because if he was just limiting it to this life We'd say, oh, okay, I did something good today. God does something good back for me tomorrow. I put in my tithe this week. Next week, I have a big surprise check coming in the mail. And that's the way some teachers, false teachers, try to teach. That's not what the Bible teaches or tells us. He's saying, in this life and the life to come, Our blessings, our rewards from God as we serve Him, some of them come this life, some of them come in the next. There's a mixture, and it's up to God how He paces that out and how He does it. Okay, And He's going to do that at His decision with His wisdom. We don't get a choice in that. It's up to Him. Okay, But He says, in this life and in the life to come. So after that, Jesus moves into another parable, and he tells us this really odd parable that we just read. Now, this scene that he describes is a very common scene. Day laborers, the, these are folks, they didn't have a steady job, okay? And then back in the day, you know, we're used to getting a weekly paycheck or a every other weekly paycheck or maybe a monthly paycheck, depending on who you... You know, if you're a state worker or a teacher, maybe you get one a month. Some places you get one every two weeks. Some places you get one a week. Does anyone here get paid every single day that you're, you know, willing to tell us? I I don't know of anybody. I mean, don't be shy. Seriously, anybody get paid at the end of the day every day? Okay, most of us don't, right? I've never worked for anybody, whether it was when I was a teenager, flipping burgers or anything. Nobody's ever said, here's your pay for the day, go home. It's always been, you know, at the end of the week. But that's not how they did it back then. We talk about living paycheck to paycheck. In the ancient world, they lived day to day. They literally lived day to day. They went to work. They were being cheated and oppressed if they were not given their pay at the end of the day. Because they may not have money to make it to the next day if they didn't get that paycheck right then. where they could go buy food and feed their family that night. And so they would go... And some people had set jobs like today, but there were many people who were daily workers, and they'd show up, and they would be standing around, and this was the place where everybody knew if you wanted to get pick up a hired hand, you'd come by, and you know, nowadays we have maybe an image in my mind of jumping in the back of the truck, right? Well, they'd come by, and whatever, their chariot or whatever they had, and they'd say, hey, come on, well, I, need, I need two workers today. I need two guys who can work in the field. I, I need, you know, three guys who are, know some masonry or whatever it is. And, and, they, and folks, they would hope that they got picked up that morning. And after most of the people who needed some help, they'd hang on. They might be there out there two or three hours. But guess what? They didn't go home. Because if they went home, there was no chance. As the hours went on, there was less and less and less chance that their family was going to have anything to eat that night. But if they went home, there was no chance. And so they stayed there, humiliated, discouraged, but they stayed there all day long, hoping and praying someone would come along and say, hey, I need you. And if it, even if it was, look, I just got a one-hour job, I can't pay you much, but, you know, come on. It'll be something. Maybe you can buy half a loaf of bread for your family. They would stay just on that hope that they may get a little bit. It wouldn't be a full denarius, which was the average day of pay for an average worker in that time. But they could give them a little something. So everybody in Jesus' day knew that's how the system worked. And so Jesus tells a story about this owner who goes out. And he finds some guys waiting, some workers waiting at the beginning of the day. And he says, I need some some guys to work all day long for me. And here's what's interesting. It says about this first group that it doesn't say about any of the other groups. It says that he agreed to pay them a denarius. All right? He agreed. That is, these workers, they were up front about, hey... We're going to make a deal with you. We will work with you under our terms, under our conditions. And we're only getting in your chariot, in your wagon, if you are up front with us and we sign a contract where we have a verbal contract and you do what this deal is between us. He says, okay, there's a deal. I will honor that deal exactly. Exactly. As the day goes on, he decides, you know what, I could use some more workers. A couple hours, he sends back for some more workers. A few hours later, he sends back for some more. And even when there's only one hour left in the workday, he gets the last little scragglers that are still there. And he says, guys, why are you still waiting here? He knows the answer, but he wants to hear it. Why are you here?" And they said, we've waited here all day long. And no one would hire us. But man, we need work. Bad. And the owner says, come on. And each and every time, with all the groups except for that first one who demanded that their deal with the land over be kept, these other ones are just happy and blessed. Rather than feeling entitled and making demands, all these other groups, feel happy and blessed. And so when he says, they don't make any demands. They don't even say anything about it at all. And the owner says, hey, I'll do you right. I'll do you right. Just trust me. And they're like, that's good enough for us. We're we're just grateful to have work. And so at the end of the day, he calls them all together. And he tells the paymaster, hey, call everybody together and start paying them. And normally, the first ones there would have been the first, who'd been there longer, they would have been the first ones to get their paycheck. (laughs) Not check, it'd be cold, hard cash, here's your denarius for the day. But this landowner, because he wasn't a normal landowner, because Jesus, as using him in this made-up story to make a point, the landowner did everything in reverse. And he calls in the ones that were called in at the, at the very last hour of the day, the ones who'd only been there one hour. And he pays them a denarius. And they're blown away, and they're overwhelmed. Wow. We never thought that we would get... We were just happy to have work. We never thought that we would get this much. And then the ones who were you know, called in before, again, they were paid a denarius. And again, they were blown away with the graciousness. They knew they had not worked a whole day. Did their families still need the same amount? Yes, they did. But, but they knew they didn't deserve it. They knew they had not worked for that man all day long. They were undeserving of the denarius. And so all groups, every single group but the last one, when they got up there and they received a denarius, they were so thankful and they were so blessed by the owner's generosity. But the last group came up and they'd been watching all this and they're like, oh man, I bet something special's coming for us because I know he did nice things for all these other jokers. But, you know, they weren't the top picks. They were the losers who had to wait. But we were the top of the bunch. We got picked first. We were better than anybody else. So I think our pay is going to get doubled. We're probably getting two, three, four denarius, you know. I mean, I'm kind of, you know, I'm kind of paraphrasing. I'm kind of thinking what was in their mind. But the Bible says they were expecting more, okay? And the Bible says when they got their denarius which is exactly what they fought for and bargained for. And they said, we're going to get this and you're going to take this deal or we're not working. The thing they demanded eight hours earlier, now when they receive it, they are incredibly angry and spiteful and they grumble and they complain. What do you mean a denarius? Denarius. We worked all day long in the heat of the sun. We broke our backs. We slaved for you. And all these other jokers, huh they didn't do anything. They just sat out there lounging around in town all day, taking a vacation, and decided to work an hour or two. And you gave them a denarius. And the landowner says, friends, I wasn't unfair to you. I wasn't unfair at all. I gave you exactly what you demanded. Exactly what you bargained for. Exactly what you said, I'm going to get. Does my generosity towards others give you an evil or envious eye about, the, about yourself just because I've blessed others? You wanted this deal And you got it. You got exactly what you wanted. C.S. Lewis often says that there's two kinds of people. Well, he said, obviously he's no longer living, but he said there's two kinds of people in this world. There are the people who say to God, Thy will be done. And there are the people who reject God. Continually, over and over through their life. And eventually, God says to them, Thy will be done. And he sends them apart from him through all eternity. You don't want to have anything to do with me. You want to reject me. You want nothing to do with me. Okay. You have your way making deals and making bargains with god is not a good idea this is part 2 of jesus lesson on why we should reject coming to him in works in our own fleshly moralism and human effort and power why should we should always choose grace Picture number one says, guess what? When you think you've done it all, you haven't. When you think you've done every single thing and everybody believes that you've measured up, guess what? God who sees knows you haven't. You will never measure up, no matter how good you are. And these standards that everybody says, look, I've... I've talked to lots of folks, including very close friends of mine over the years. People I love and I'm heartbroken over, and I've had people say things like, Well, I've done more good than bad. No, this is the this is the you know balance type scales. God doesn't judge us with the balance scales. I've had others say to me, Oh, well, I'm not a murderer. I'm not a rapist. I'm not, in other words, I'm better than so-and-so. So surely I'm okay with God because I didn't do those really bad things or those things that society considers to be a lot worse than the things I've done. But God's standards are not our standards. It's not a who are we better than or what are the scales on the balance The Bible says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's a gap. Doesn't matter how good a swimmer you are. It's like us trying to swim to Hawaii. Lots of you are better swimmers than me. And you may last a little longer than I do. (laughs) But it doesn't matter. Because none of us would get there. We would all fall short. And there is an infinite gap. And we all need God's grace. And we make these deals and we think we're going to work. We're, we think we're going to put God in a corner like these first set of workers did in the second parable. Where we say, God, if you do this, I'm going to do this. Now, God, I'll work hard for you if only you heal my spouse who's going through this terrible thing. God, okay, I'm really I'm going to give up this bad thing I'm doing if you start blessing me financially. God, if you heal my marriage. God, if you make this career thing better. God, if you, if you, if you, and we try to manipulate God and we try to, you know, force God and we make deals with God. And God, if you do the way I want... If you make things go my way, then I'll live for you. And Jesus says, you know what? Even if you were to get your way, even if God were to grant your deal, and I have serious doubts about how many of these deals with God that God ever actually says okay about. Because I've heard lots of people tell me they made a deal with God. And I'm thinking that's a real one-sided deal. (laughs) Really wondering if God signed off on it. But Jesus said, look, even if God agreed to that deal, guess what? If you'd have just trusted him when he said, I'll do right by you. If you'd have stopped trying to manipulate. If you'd have stopped trying to get him to do what you wanted to do and you just said, you know what, I'll trust you. I believe that you care for me. I believe that you love me. I believe that you have my best in mind. And when you say I'll do what's right for you, that's all I need to know. The point of Jesus' Jesus' parable is not how you should handle employee pay relations. If you're a manager, don't ever handle your pay relations that way. It's not the point of the parable. The point of the parable is that you should trust God. Trust God. Because whatever deal you think you can make Him agree to, whatever thing you can say, oh, this is the bargain I've made with God, if you'll simply trust Him, you always understand that grace is better than works. So if you ever have to choose, choose grace. you remembered. Let's pray. Father God, I don't know why my sinful and prideful nature can at times fool me and distract me into thinking or forgetting how much I need you, how much I'm dependent on your grace. How much I am completely unworthy without you, but totally worthy because of Jesus Christ and what he's done and the fact that the spirit of Christ now lives in me. And Father, I pray for my friends in Jesus Christ, my brothers and sisters who are here and also those who are, who are watching or listening, Lord, that they would have that same reminder that I've been given father that we would all remember that grace is not just something that we need this one time in our lives when we first hear the word and believe but that grace is something that we must walk in and we must live in and we must believe in and trust in every single day of our lives as believers god your grace truly is amazing Father, help us to always, always choose grace. To give up on building up our rep. To give up on spinning our image. On appearing to be moral. On trying to be impressive. On trying to complete the checklist of all the things Good people are supposed to do, and rather to throw ourselves wholly and completely into the relationship with you. And to simply trust when you say that you will do what is right by us, that it will be far more than we deserve. Because God, we understand your word actually tells us what we deserve. Your word tells us that the wages of sin, that is the rightful payment for sin, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Lord, we deserve an eternity apart from you in a place of torment. But rather by your grace, Father, we can receive here and now an eternal life a relationship with you in the here and now in the present life that can grow and grow and grow, that will never end, Father, but will only be transformed to another and greater level one day. God, that is what we want. Father, if there's anybody here today, God, who hasn't begun that journey of faith by looking to you and trusting and saying, yes, God, I believe that your son Jesus Lord, that he took the penalty for my sin. Lord God, I I pray that today, that their belief, that it would click, that it would pierce the hardened heart, the stiff neck, the unbelief, the skepticism, and that today, that they would come to a faith in Jesus Christ. For Father, for those of us who've been in faith for a long time, and maybe our faith has become stagnant, maybe we've backslid, maybe we've wandered away. Lord, maybe we've just gotten complacent, maybe we've gotten self-sufficient where we think we don't need your grace, or we've forgotten how desperate and needy we are. God remind us of your grace. Oh, how we need your grace. Father, help us to call to you and to be desperate for that grace and mercy that only you can provide. And God, as this next song is sung, may each of us, Lord, spend time reflecting and responding to your amazing grace. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.